We get the privilege of continuing in Psalms today. We're in Psalm 119, obviously. We are in part 10 of 11. And part 10 is the Kof letter. Kof. It's one of those letters, if you ever want to play Scrabble, and you have a Q, and you don't have a U, I don't know if they'll accept it, but Q-O-P-H is a Hebrew letter. Q-O-P-H, Kof. They let you put other letters in Scrabble, they might as well let you put a Hebrew letter in there, right? Anyway, it is the letter Kof. And it begins, this stanza, the Kof stanza, begins with an earnest prayer to God. He is crying out, the, the author is crying out with his whole heart. And this is how we need to approach God in prayer, with the whole heart. Now I've got to admit there's times that I haven't done that. And there will probably be times in the future where I don't, but boy, I need to keep that in mind. To approach God with our whole heart. It's very easy to slip into a nonchalant approach when we pray. I remember someone telling me, oh yeah, I, I sent out a dart to heaven. You know, just a prayer dart. Bubble. You know, and I, I'm going, I know what you're saying. I know what you're saying, but is your whole heart involved in that? Probably something Beth Moore would say. I wouldn't suggest you follow much anything that Beth Moore says. Especially recently, she's going downhill pretty fast. But our mind, my mind, can wander. And it's easy when we go to God, it is for me anyway, to lose focus on what a privilege it is to go to God in prayer. It's a privilege. We are conversing with the Creator. Now just like sit back and you just let that sink in for a minute. At least I need to do that. We are conversing with the Creator. And I'm sure that if Jesus himself, and I'm not saying it will happen, so I'm not one of those guys, but I'm sure that if Jesus himself would physically walk into this room where everyone in the room would see and know it was him, we would be completely focused on him. That would be our focus. And in prayer, we are talking to God. And we need to be like the psalmist here to focus on him with our whole heart. And this stanza is full of points that show the earnestness and the validity of calling out to God. In his book, The God Who Hears, which is a book on prayer by W. Bingham Hunter, it deals with prayer. In his, in his introductory chapter, he states several things that have impacted us in general that hinder our beliefs in prayer. And hinders our belief that God hears our prayer. And impacts then our exercising prayer in our lives. And the list that he gave can be summarized somewhat like this. And then here's his summary. thought about putting him in the notes, but it got pretty large. 
Some things he listed was this. The first one is, prayer is infrequently dealt with in a systematic theology text. Most evangelical seminaries do not have a course on prayer. They'll talk about lots of other things, but there's no course on prayer. And this causes, he says, many people to, quote, do it on their own. And then he says, modern thought places prayer into a supernatural event. While our emphasis on, uh, on science and technology makes many people think that prayer is more mystical in nature, which is hard to grasp. The next thing he says is teachings on prayer often distort scripture and many times Scripture is taken out of context by people who talk about prayer. This is especially true in the word faith movement. They take those things out of context so far, there's nothing left. They just pull them out. <clears throat> the quote, prayer of faith. I don't know if you ever heard that term. Or in Jesus' name. Is that a magic formula at the end? If you don't say that, it doesn't go anywhere? You know, are a couple examples that are mistaught and misused. Too few know what prayer is. We do not, when we do not know what prayer is, we do not know what we are doing when we are praying. Hunter states this personal communication with our Lord is thus commonly thought of in mechanical and economic terms. And then, this is another one that wasn't listed by Hunter, but there are the throngs that think that they can pray to dead saints or even to dead relatives. Now, the Catholic Church is full of this. And they're not alone. So this stanza in Psalm 119 is full of points that show the earnestness and the validity in calling out to God. So let's look at it a little bit. Verse 145 and 146 says, With my whole heart I cry, Answer me, O God, I will keep your statutes. I call to you, save me, that I may observe your testimonies. The line in 146 that says, Save me, or answer me, brings to mind Peter's call out to Christ when he was walking on the water in the Sea of Galilee in Matthew 14, 29 and 30. He jumped out of the boat to go to Jesus walking on water and then he took his eyes off of Jesus, realized what he was doing and go, uh-oh, I'm in trouble. He cried out to Jesus and, and this has been the cry of many others who have cried out to be saved and that cry to Jesus is still effective. And that's what the, the author is doing here. He's crying out to Jesus in that similar approach. And then in 1 Thessalonians 5.17, we are told to pray without ceasing. Communication with God is to be a normal and ongoing event in our lives. So, to turn to God in a time of crisis is something that most believers do, 
but talking with God needs to be done as a normal matter of course. Not just when we need help. Not just when we're sinking. And this is brought out beginning in verse 147 and 148 where we read this. I rise before dawn and cry for help. I hope in your words. My eyes are awake before the watches of the night that I may meditate on your promise. Now I have a recording of an incredible musical uh, uh, a choral musical cantata, I guess you might call it, called Exaltation, that just it was made 30 years, 40 years ago, and is still phenomenally, phenomenally done. And in that, in that uh, musical is a song called In Thee, O Lord, I Put My Trust. And it's, it's arranged by Ron Huff, by the way. Where there, as an introduction to that song, there's this beautiful choral music, or, orchestral music playing in the background, and a narrator, one of those guys with the real kind of cool, deep narrator type voices that I don't have. He quotes Psalm 119, 147, and 148, and it's just a thrill to listen to it. I thought about bringing it and playing it. I mean, I've got it on my phone, but then we disrupt the other class. But it's it's it just helps you picture in your mind the event of rising up early in the morning just as it is getting light on a cool summer morning and spend quality time talking with God. It just, it, 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 that picture just pops up in your mind. And how special that time is. It's a thrilling piece to listen to and it gives me a little glimpse of the passion that this psalmist is speaking of when he speaks with God. He rises before dawn and cries for help. He hopes in your in God's words. My eyes are awake before the watches of the night that I may meditate on your promise. I need that passion like he has here. And it's a great privilege to speak to God and we need it to we need to treat it as something extraordinarily special not just something oh I threw a dart out and I understand there's times that we need to do that I mean with times we need to something's going on and we focus for just a minute on 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 God but it needs to be a passion now I want to focus on the word meditate that's in verse 148 Yes. I've noticed that you've used the word focus a lot here. I love that word. Your focus has changed. Yeah. It used to be on the one thing. And it has to be clear. A clear focus. A clear focus on God, yes. Yes. And my focus gets, I mean, us type A kind of people, sometimes our focus goes... Got to bring it back. Got to bring that focus back. Maybe that's why I use the word is because I know that's what I am where I'm challenged. So. Thank you. The word meditate in verse 148. This is why the writer is awake in the middle of the night, and that is to meditate on God's word. It is something that consumes him. 
To meditate on God's word, and I put it in your notes here, is to, will result in internalizing it. And that internalization will result in actions, behaviors, and attitudes. If you want to change your life to live more like Christ, these verses contain the key on how to do it. Internalizing God's word will influence how we think, and how we think influences how we act. It really isn't rocket science. You know? We meditate on God's word. It influences our mind, which influences our actions. Boyce defined the word meditate as this. Quote, he said, internalizing the Bible's teaching to such an extent that the truths discovered in the Bible become part of how we think, so that we think differently and then also function differently as a result. Ron Jensen, who is the former president of a school of theology, wrote this, When you sow a thought, you reap an action. When you sow the action, you reap a habit. When you sow a habit, you reap a character. When you sow that character, you reap a destiny. And it all starts with meditating on God's word. Think of what God charged the people of Israel with when they were about to enter the promised land under the human guidance of Joshua. In Joshua 1, 7-8, we read this. Only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn it to the right hand or the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Why? By keeping the book of the law, keeping the word of God, forefront in your mind. Now, if you were at the Wednesday study, this last Wednesday, or watched it online, Scott Basolo was teaching from Daniel. He went to chapter 9 and he backed up a little bit. Um, But last Wednesday, he talked about Daniel's prayer. In Daniel's prayer, he said, Daniel's prayer included this, and this the, these are Scott's notes. I, I called him up to make sure I had them right, and I had all but one word right, so I did pretty good. Daniel's prayer includes a response to God's word. It includes a fervent self-denial. Daniel's prayer identified unselfishly with God's people. Daniel's prayer was strengthened by confession Daniel's prayer was dependent on God's character. And then, probably the most important piece, in my mind, Daniel's prayer, the goal was God's glory. 
Prayer does not motivate God. It changes us. Bingham Hunter in his book said us this way. I think this is I think it's accurate. I didn't go to look it up, but I think this is what I remember. Prayer is the method God uses to give us what he wants. I don't know about you, but I've heard seen a lot of people says, well, let's have a whole bunch of people come together in prayer because if we get a whole bunch of people, then God's got to act. That's not how it works. With my whole heart I cry, answer me, O Lord. I call to you, save me, that I may observe your testimonies. Going on in verse 149. It says, Hear my voice according to your steadfast love, O Lord. According to your justice, give me life. They draw near who persecute me with evil purpose. They are far from your law. But you are near, O Lord. And all your commandments are true. Long have I known your testimonies that you have founded them forever. So next in this stanza, we see that he wants to be heard according to God's promises. He wants his prayers to God to be consistent with God's words in accordance with what God has revealed. There's a story that Harry Ironside, now I don't know if you know who Harry Ironside was, but he was a, a great teacher, preacher, theologian, pastor, educator, an author in the first half of the 20th century. And it tells about when he was a young pastor or you know, learning you know, what God was doing in his life. It tells about him meeting an, old, an older godly man early in his ministry. And this godly man, you've probably never heard of him, I never had, was named Andrew Fraser. And Andrew was old at the time Harry met him. I mean, really old. He was dying of tuberculosis, and he could barely speak above a whisper. And so they, they, uh, Harry Ironside went to Andrew's house, and the conversation began when Andrew asked, quote, Young man, you are trying to preach Christ, are you not? Yes, I am, replied Ironside. Well, he said, Sit down a little and let us speak together about the Word of God. He opened his Bible, and until his strength was gone, he unfolded one passage after another, teaching truths that Ironside at the time had not appreciated or even perceived. Before long, tears were running down Ironside's cheeks, and he asked, Where did you get these things? Can you tell me where I can find a book that will open them up for me? Did you get them in seminary or a college? Fraser replied, My dear young man, I learned these things on my knees on the mud floor of an old sod cottage in the north of Ireland. There with my open Bible before me, I used to kneel for hours at a time and ask the Spirit of God to reveal Christ to my soul and open up the Word to my heart. 
He taught me more on my knees on that mud floor than I ever could have learned in all the seminaries or colleges in the world. That's quite a quote. It is possible to have a great theological education and still know very little about God. All you have to do is look at some or all of the false teachers today that abound. And these guys are ignorant. Learning must be more than academic. It needs to come personally from God and his word and his spirit. And that's what he's asking here. Teach me your word. Another thing we see is the faith of the psalmist. There are several indications throughout this stanza. The first, 145, answer me, O Lord. One, verse 147, I hope in your words. Verse 149, hear my voice. Verse 151, all your commandments are true. These statements are reflections of a strong belief that God can and will answer his prayers. This is an example of James 1, 6 to 8, where it says, But let them ask in faith without doubting, for the one who doubts is like the wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man and unstable in all his ways. Here is a good example of a man who is asking God without doubting. This gives way to the question that has helped him, the writer, have such a strong confidence in the Lord. Each of us can and does struggle with this, some more than others. When our faith is not strong, where do we turn to for that strength? There is only one place to turn, and that is God's Word. It's the message about salvation in Romans 10. Romans 10, 17, we read, So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the Word of God. So as we read through this whole chapter, the most impactful thing has been his consistent study and meditation on God's words. Verse 147 is one indication. He says, My eyes are awake before the watches of the night that I may meditate on your promise. When we wake up in the middle of the night and can't sleep, okay, Think of that as a time to meditate on God's promises. And when you fall asleep, it'll be pretty restful sleep. So, the hymn, How Firm a Foundation, you might have heard it, probably have, deals with the certainty of God's word that it can be trusted. It starts like this. How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. The last line of the stanza gives us a great conclusion. Verse 152. It says, Long I have known from your testimonies that you have founded them forever. Another statement that God's word will last, how long? Forever. Jesus confirmed this as well in Matthew 24, 25. 
where he says, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. And I believe in your notes, you have the, I put the notes there from Scott, from Scott's thing on your, on your paper. So that, real quickly, is the Kof passage, or Kof section. Now we get to go to the Resh session, starting with verse 153. Now, the theme of the prior session was prayer. The theme of this one is obedience. After the stanza that deals with the earnestness of crying out to God, show me your word, show me your teaching, well, now we are brought to the stanza that speaks about obedience. If you have the teaching of God, we need to obey the teaching of God. Obedience is what God tells us in His Word. And obedience, by the way, is not optional. Sometimes we like to think it is. It's an essential to being a genuine disciple of God. In today's relativistic mindset, many Christians think of obedience to God's commands as not something to be pursued. Poll after poll after poll show that many, Christ, many who say they are Christians are not committed to God's word or to God. There was a, there's a polling place I found called the PonceFoundation.com. One survey found that 22%, 22% of those who claim to be Christians believe the Bible is fully inspired by God himself. I mean, 78% don't. And these people are Christians, they say. Less than 30% will read through the Bible and only 18% only eighteen read their Bibles outside of when they are in a church service. And if you go to most churches today that claim to be Christian, just stand outside sit in the parking lot, and look at how many of them bring a Bible with them. Yeah, they have it on their phone, but they also have games on their phone. You know, we don't know what they're doing. Are they playing the games? Are they playing solitaire, or are they reading the Bible when the pastor's preaching? Obedience to God's Word is impossible when you don't know what it says. When you do not cherish it, when you do not meditate on it, you will not be obedient to it. The result of this mindset by today's Christians, today's church, is chaos in the church and chaos in the lives of individuals. People want a quick fix to their problems, but without exception. And Scott does, you didn't mention that Scott does biblical counseling, right? And you do too. Without exception, all fixes to individuals' problems need to begin with obedience to God's word and obedience to God. There are no words given by any man ever that can do what God's word can do. None. Because the Spirit of God isn't in those. Listen to Hebrews 4.12. 
For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and spirit of joints and marrow and discerning of the, of the thoughts and intentions of the heart. In 2 Timothy 3.16, it says, All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Eleven times in Psalm 119, the writer pleads for God to teach him. We go through Psalm 119. Teach me, teach me, teach me, teach me. No one can be taught by the scripture if they refuse to read the very document that is designed to teach. It's not going to happen just by osmosis. Like I said earlier somewhere tonight, today I think, obedience is not an optional part of the Christian life. Jesus himself said in Luke, or uh, Different spot, different spot. Jesus said, I don't, have the, I don't have the reference here. If you love me, keep my commandments. And regarding this in Luke 6, 43 to 49, Jesus said, For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit, for each tree is known by its fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor grapes from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. He goes on, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose and the stream broke against that house, could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. And then in Isaiah twenty-nine thirteen, we read this. Where God's saying, the people draw near me with their mouths and their lips glorify me, but their heart is far from me. It's a huge issue and it's taught throughout scripture. Obedience is not optional. James 1, to 25 says this, But be ye doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. For if a man be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he shall be compared to a man beholding his own countenance in a glass. For he beheld himself and went his way, <coughs> and presently forgot what manner of man he was. But he that hath looked into the perfect law of liberty, he hath continued therein, not becoming a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work. This man shall be blessed in his deed. Disobedience is always going to be the greatest challenge in our Christian walk. This is a greater challenge than illness or heartache, anything else. Our greatest challenge is always going to be disobedience. And how do we become obedient? 
by getting ourselves immersed into the Word of God. We will struggle, 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 we will struggle to better obey God's commands from now until we are called home. It's going to be a struggle. But it's a challenge worth facing. I've told people, the, first, the moment you become a Christian, <clears throat> now you have a struggle. Because you're struggling with the old man and the new man. The non-Christian doesn't have a struggle. The Christian does, but it's worth every minute of it. Obedience brings about a life filled with the fruits of the Spirit, which include joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, and we can go on. And obedience must begin with the attitude toward God's Word as brought out all throughout Psalm 119. In verse 156, we read, Great is your mercy, O Lord. Give me life according to your rules. Many are my persecutors and my adversaries, but I do not swerve from your testimonies. I look at the faithless with disgust, because they do not keep your commands. Consider how I love your precepts. Give me life according to your steadfast love. In this stanza, I see a person who knew that immersing himself in God's word is critical to obedience. Through this process, the writer learned first that God is merciful. We see this in verse 156. Even though we will struggle to obey God's commands, we're not going to do it perfectly. It's an impossible task, but God gives mercy. What is God's mercy? If I were to define, you know, if you were to sit down and say, okay, this is a class, write out God's mercy, what it means. We'd get some interesting answers. Some would be very good, some eh, maybe not. I don't know. But it has been defined. I went and looked at the book Biblical Doctrines to get what how they defined it. It has been defined as God's deep compassion. For people such that he demonstrates benevolent goodness to those in a pitiable or miserable condition even though they do not deserve it. That's God's mercy. In 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians 1 3 it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. And in Ephesians 2, 4 to 7, it says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. I know Jim could make two or three messages out of that one. God being rich in mercy. And then the other thing we see when we go to verse 160, the sum of your word is truth and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. God's word is 
true. When I look around, it's truly amazing to me to see how many people put their, put their absolute trust in something that is clearly not true. Not only are these belief systems untrue, if you really look at it objectively, you can see how they could not be true. They cannot be verified by history, or logic, or science, or eternal consistency, or any other objective truth that's put to them. But it doesn't seem to matter to their adherents. I remember talking to a guy at work one time, and he said, well, I got it figured out. As soon as you've learned everything you're supposed to learn, you die, and then you're reincarnated, and you keep on going. Oh, how's that work? Well, you know, I was in Vietnam, and that's just what I figured out. Okay? I mean, you sit there and you shake your head and go, you live with that worldview? <clears throat> in actuality, when you look at some of these worldviews, these, some of these religious systems, the false claims are incredible. And they can be verified as false, either internally inconsistent or just total nut, nut jobs. For example, Christian science says that man is incapable of sickness and death. That's their doctrinal position. Then they go on to say that those who are sick are healed by an understanding that there is no sickness. Okay. Hinduism, its aim to know is, is to know God and then teaches that God can't be known or only realized. So you can realize God, but you can't know God, but my aim is to know God. Islam says it is a religion of peace, while at the same time, those who follow the teachings of the Quran and the Hadith Instruct adherents, adherents to slay those who will not convert to Islam. But we're a religion of peace. Catholicism teaches that tradition and scripture may not be separated. Tradition and scripture may not be separated since the two form one sacred deposit of the word of God. They claim, and this came from a a book called the Catholic Catechism on page 48 and 49, quote, tradition develops and grows. It moved forward and progresses towards fullness until, until all mysteries will cease in the final vision of God. So tradition brings us the final vision of God. So what happens when the tradition conflicts with Scripture? Or tradition conflicts with other tradition. Well, it's the newer one always wins out. The newer tradition wipes out the old. It does. Yeah. In in Catholicism, I, I I just saw a quote this week, and I might mess it up a little bit from some Catholic cardinal or bishop or something, and it was a video, and he said. We are number one people of the church and second people of the book. Mm 
The church trumps the book. Well, then I get to tell you what the church teaches. I mean, you see the inconsistencies there. Scientology. Oh boy, you want to get into a fun one? It states that a person can reach their own conclusions concerning the nature of God or the supreme being or the infinity, whichever you want to name you want to throw in there, and what lies in store for him after his or her present lifetime. So I get to make it up. You know, I mean, the inconsistencies is, are incredible. It's what Francis Schaeffer describes as non-reason. Those who hold to belief systems like these have brought, bought into the lie that faith doesn't have to be reasonable or accurate. What matters is that you believe in it. If you say something is true long enough, somehow it will become true. It's totally unreasonable. Faith doesn't have to be accurate or reasonable. And that is everywhere in in the world today. Think about the Mormon teaching on becoming a god in another heaven, and you're going to be with your whole family. I asked a Mormon person one time, I said, how does this work? You become a god in this next world because you were good, and you bring your whole family with you, right? Yeah. Well, how about your son who married a girl from another family, and he becomes good enough to become a god? Who's he with? And their kids. And their kids. And, and, and you know what he told me? He says, well, we don't know how that works. We'll figure it out when we get there. Or we'll know when we get there. Because they can't. It's inconsistent. It's, it's faith in faith. You know, God and God's word can be subjected to any test given it and come out unscathed. It is trustworthy in any and every sense. When you compare to Christianity to every other religious system in the world, it comes out as true and pure, both historically and internally. It alone answers the deepest questions of mankind. Christianity answers the question of origin. Where did I come from? It answers the question of meaning. What is it that gives my life meaning and purpose? It answers the question of morality. What is right and wrong and why? And it answers the question of destiny. What will happen to me when I die? And in that question of destiny, what caused the sin problem the world has? How can a sinful person be reconciled to a holy God? And why is God just in either saving or condemning a person? These are just a few examples. The list can go on and on. Christianity tackles these questions directly and provides consistent and realistic answers. And to believe in Jesus Christ, I put this quote in here, is not a leap of faith into the unknown. It is a step of faith into what God has revealed to us in his word. 
Faith in Jesus Christ is not unreasonable. It's not inaccurate. It's not internally inconsistent. And it be, can, can be subjected to any test given to it and come out unscathed. That's how we can be with the author here in verse 160. The sum of your word is truth. And every one of your righteous rules endures forever. I mean, that verse is packed with a lot of stuff. The sum of your word is truth. And every one of your righteous rules endures forever. And when I think about all those things we just covered, it brings me, hopefully you, great comfort. I do not want to adhere to a belief system that cannot be subjected to the tests of truth and pass those with flying colors. I don't want to be believing something that some kook made up somewhere and trust him and just believe it hard or believe that faith is unreasonable or not reasonable and faith doesn't have to have reason. No, faith has all of those things. It's faith in God in what he has done and what is revealed. And we can stand confident that Christianity answers all of those questions. And the Word of God is why we know about those. Why we should love the Word of God. And be like he says in verse 159, Consider how I love your precepts. Give me life according to your steadfast love. Let's pray.